Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day there, Dan Illich with you for the greatest moral podcast of our generation. This is a great episode. Uh, I have had the privilege of talking with America. Yes, the whole country. Actually, Rick Duke, who is the Deputy Climate Envoy for the US State Department, his job is essentially to travel around the world preaching from the gospel of climate action, a job that considerably got a lot easier in August when the US passed the Inflation Reduction Act, a name that hides exactly what it is, which is a mega climate spending spree. Yeah, huge amounts of money, tax credits and incentives for things like renewable energy, CCS, EVs, community projects. And of course, uh, it is not without controversy. It also opens up federal land for fossil fuel exploration. It's a bit of a complicated story, but essentially this whole thing, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, not Irish Republican Army, (laughs) is essentially a huge deal for climate change. It could revolutionise America's approach for years to come when it comes to their emissions. The more I've learned about it, the more excited I am about it, and the more it will hopefully encourage other countries to do the same. Now, it is a far cry from the lit service that Australia's government has so far provided on climate action, but maybe, maybe with the US leading the way, that could change. A word about how we could make this podcast. You know, it was kind of an expensive one because I couldn't go to the consulate to record my podcast there. They don't actually allow people to take electronic equipment into the US consulate. It's a whole deal, uh, let me tell you. And I couldn't exactly invite America into my house. It's very small. I can't fit a whole country in there. And let me tell you... the Deputy Climate Envoy, had a hell of an entourage. So I had to book professional studios, um, but it was well worth doing face-to-face. And I could only do this podcast and last week's podcast as well, the one we did at Stupid Old Studios in Melbourne, because of your support on Patreon. Now, if you enjoy these conversations, if you enjoy Rational Fear, if you enjoy our climate chats, please chip in as a Patreon supporter. It costs real money to make this show and I need your help. So You can chip in for as little as a a cup of coffee a month. And the benefit is you get unedited 
previews of stuff. You get um, to see videos I'm working on uh, and you get a link to the Discord so you can join in in the conversations of people who make this show. And also uh, Irrational Fear Superfans, they're all on Discord um, and we have great conversations about Ozpol there. It's really, uh, really, really good fun. Uh, and look, I know there are 7,000 of you who listen to this show, which is huge, but only about 300 who chip in. So what we'd love to do this year is get that 300 to 600 and that way we could do more expensive podcasting. <laughs> we recorded our conversation on Gadigal Land of the Orination at a very expensive studio. Let's start the interview. Despite global warming, a rational fear is adding a little more hot air with long-form discussions with climate leaders, good and bad. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The heat waves and drought. Greatest. Mass extinction. Moral. We're facing a man-made disaster. Podcast. They're the climate criminals. Of our generation. All of this with the global warming and the, that, a lot of it's a hoax. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Goompog. For short. Well, our next guest on the greatest moral podcast of our generation is someone who's been at the forefront of culture, society, democracy, industry, and corn syrup based foodstuffs since 1776. It's great privilege to have on Irrational Fear, one of the longest running superpowers ever. United States of America. Welcome, America. <laughs> it's good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> that is the voice of Rick Duke, who, despite everything going on in the world, has spent 20 years trying to make the world a better place through global democracy uh, and focusing on climate change. He was a special advisor on climate to President Barack Obama, a fellow at the Brookings Institute, and like our many of our fellow guests, is deep, deep in the wonkery of climate policy, having cut his teeth at the Natural Resources Defence Council. But right now, he's the Deputy Special Envoy for Climate for the United States. Rick, it's really great to have you. What a privilege. It's great to be here. Thanks for uh, making time to talk to me. <laughs> no worries. For, like, I just kind of gave a very cliff notes of your career based on your LinkedIn profile, but I don't know much about you. Can you tell me what you've done over the last 20 years? Like, How did you find yourself deep in, this, in the climate fight? When I was in college, I was in environmental studies and economics and thinking about where I wanted to work. And I kind of kept gravitating between economics and environment. And the thing that is really at the heart of that nexus is climate change. And even then, with Al Gore telling the world about uh, what to worry about, and my professors also helping me to, to orient on it all, it was clear that we needed to take this question more seriously than any of the others on environment. And so it was the biggest, thorniest challenge. And I just kept coming back to it uh, over the course of my career. Were you ever distracted? Did you say, you know, I might, I might just try carpentry for a little bit and <laughs> knock up some shelves? <laughs> I, I, I was distracted by working on uh, some of the economics only side for a while. I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for, uh -huh. uh, for a stint right out of college. I actually worked in Mexico right, right out of college for a bit. Uh, but even there, I ended up coming back to uh, related themes. I, I went to Mexico without a particular plan, but ended up working for the Mexican government for the <laughs> summer on climate, believe it or not. So it just keeps being a theme for me. And uh, even when I went into consulting, uh, I found a way to focus on climate uh, before it was really central to what management consultants were doing. And it's just been a passion kind of along the way. So was there an aha moment? Was it like a catalyst moment for you? 
you went, oh, fuck this. I've got to go. I've got to do climate stuff. I don't know if it's a single thing as much as kind of the whole process of being a kid in college trying yeah. to decide what mattered and what really motivated me. And it was the sense that it was not really possible to do right by the environment unless we got the climate piece done right first. And then also when we looked at the other environmental questions, a lot of those, at least in the U.S., were being managed. And so it seemed like the thing that was kind of work undone. Well, and that is that is an extraordinary amount of time has passed since college. And over the last three weeks, you must be kind of doing somersaults. <laughs> uh, what an extraordinary moment to kind of have the IRA passed. Was that a big moment for you? It was a huge moment for basically me, my family, my friends, everyone I know is uh, pretty much over the moon about well, did it. Did your family turn to you and go, Dad, are you happy now, Dad? Can you, can you quit I now, mean, Dad? The, the two and the five-year-old, I think, are a little sure. bit uh, disconnected from this conversation, sure. even though they live in D.C., but, uh, but it really it has been a huge deal for everyone that I work with, all my friends in, uh, in the business on climate change. And it is hard to overstate how important it is. I mean, we've all in the U.S. been at it for uh, 20 years, really, trying to get our Congress to coalesce despite all of our divisions. Like since the 90s, like Bill yeah. Clinton era yeah. kind of? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, back to that date is, is, I think, the right place to start. At that time, you know, President Clinton tried to do a energy tax as a way to get started on the problem mm. and just got savaged for it. And then we um, tried to find a way forward in all kinds of different ways from cap and trade. Cap and trade, to, that was a big one. <laughs> right. And then, you know, I was part of crafting um, some of the details of President Obama's efforts to do a clean electricity standard. Yeah. None of that got traction and everything got close um, along the way or things got close along the way and smaller things got done. We got yeah. versions of incentives for wind and solar done and so on. But this is the first time where we have a full package that's comprehensive, that's durable, it's really going to make the difference. And so it's a big deal. Yeah, I love the name, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. It's very climate. You know, when I think of climate, I think of reducing and inflammation uh, <laughs> and all of those things. Yeah, no, it, like it's such a strange name, right? Because it feels like, oh, well, that's a, clearly a name that is hiding the the true benefits that this that this uh, bill right. is going to bring. Like, why didn't you call it um, Stop the Heat Death of the Planet Bill or, uh, or It's Bloody Time Act or something like that? I can tell you with confidence that my colleagues in the administration would have called it essentially anything that Senator Manchin wanted to call it. <laughs> uh, and I think that it was, but, but honestly, the Inflation Reduction Act is a good name for it in the following substantive sense. Right. This bill will demonstrably lower the cost of living for consumers because it is going to make it possible to get that electric vehicle that is so much cheaper to operate over the life of the vehicle that insulates you from the ups and downs of gasoline prices. Uh -huh. It's going to make it possible to get a heat pump that means uh, you are also insulated from natural gas price volatility. And that is a very kind of consumer sense of reducing costs uh, in addition to that, it happens to be deficit reducing. And that's the kind of macroeconomics of it, that it will actually reduce inflation because it's going to take some deficit out of the system uh, right away because it's paid for and more 
by rolling back some of the tax cuts for the wealthy that the prior administration put in place and by putting in place some quite rational approaches to really encouraging companies to invest by taxing what are called stock buybacks, mm. um, which is something companies do when they don't want to invest. Uh, <laughs> uh, they just buy back their own stock. And this is now going to be discouraged in a way that raises money. And all that together means it cuts the deficit and it's going to cut consumer energy costs and uh, make consumers more secure. You know, when we talk a lot about climate policy, we're always talking about carrots and sticks. It just feels like the US government's just dumped a truckload of carrots on the country and will continue to for some time. And that will make lots of people happy. <laughs> As opposed to something like a carbon tax, which is very unpopular. <laughs> I mean, we've tried to have carbon taxes here. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that, but it uh, didn't go down so well. So one thing that's interesting in this bill uh, is that it does include a fee on methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. Oh, yeah, right. And so there's an element in there that is, uh, I guess, old school in that sense. Old school stick. <laughs> yes. And it includes a whole range of investments and incentives the way you're describing, and that is the bulk of the bill is, mm. is the uh, the carrot side. And so, but it's also worth noting that, and, and the administration has been clear about this already, that with all this in place, then it helps to allow states and cities and our own federal government to then set standards that encourage companies to step up and do the right thing, right. investing in uh, everything from uh, electric vehicles to heat pumps to renewables, et cetera. And so it is a basis for doing much more than just the carrots. Yeah. Uh, there are some things that the climate community are not so happy with, like the concessions for new oil and gas and the tying of uh, leases for oil and gas to the kind of leases that are going out for renewable energy. Are those as bad as people are making them out to be, do you think? So there is... Nothing like legislation to force compromise. In order to get anything big done in our Congress and really any political system, there will be compromises required. And of course, the administration wanted to do much more with this bill than in the end we were able to on much broader topics than climate. Yeah. But the good news is that on climate, we got the essence done with this bill. We got all the most important things done. And there were some compromises on the level that you're describing. Now, how to think about this is that there's already been a lot of analysis done that shows that it is clearly decisively the case that the benefits here from transforming our giant American economy to uh, clean electricity and electrified everything vastly outweigh any potential uh, climate costs that come from uh, marginal output from additional oil or gas um, related to the leasing provisions. It's not even close. It's, there's no contest. And all the credible analyses that have already been done have been very clear about that. So do you think this is a real time to celebrate? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're not done celebrating. <laughs> is this like a global a lap of victory around the world? Are you, are you stopping at every country going, we did it, guys, we did it? In, in all seriousness, having this in place means that we can... Look uh, at countries in the eye and say... <laughs> it, means, it means we can uh, go into full diplomatic push to try to get everyone to join us in setting targets that are good enough to keep a safer climate within reach and then delivering on those targets. And so we're busy doing that in capitals everywhere, usually by Zoom. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Well, it's so pri- it's a privilege to do it face to face. Yeah, I think that's uh, really remarkable because really it would make your job extremely difficult to come to Australia and go, "Hey guys, you need to do more," and you know, <laughs> not being able to being able to say that America is now going to be doing something significant is is great. Can I just uh, note that this is something that is going to last? I think that sometimes people yeah. question our constancy as the United States. I just want to jump in and talk about that because the core of this Inflation Reduction Act is a set of comprehensive 10-year tax credits for clean power, for electric vehicles, for uh, clean industry, for clean buildings and beyond. And all of those tools have strong bipartisan support because we have seen Let's say back in 2015, the Obama-Biden administration mm. negotiated a, uh, a set of tax credits for wind and solar that were five years long and smaller. But those persisted straight through the Trump administration and delivered record years of wind and solar deployment straight through that era politically. And that, to me, is proof of concept that these are popular, that they are uh, bipartisan-supported measures. And even though the whole bill was done on a partisan basis, ultimately, because that was the only option uh, left, the underlying elements, the substance of the bill on climate, is not something that's going to be rolled back by anyone at any time. This is going to happen, and it's going to win friends over time as it happens because it's going to create jobs and it's going to create momentum in yeah, its own right. If you're in a red state and you get an electric car cheaper or a heat pump cheaper, you automatically are you know, benefiting from this bill, and, and, your, and your prices of electricity go down. Yeah. In, in, in picking up on that, yes, on the consumer side, but also a lot of the development on renewables and some of the other elements of this bill on the manufacturing side and so on are really going to benefit the whole country and especially some of the parts of the country that are most skeptical uh, right now. But I think once this really gets rolling, you're going to see more and more supporters of this bill. It's already quite popular in the public. So for like um, vulnerable communities whose uh, water and air aren't, aren't as clean now, these initiatives will clean up those those areas. Yes. And for um, economically vulnerable communities that need jobs and employment and better prospects, there's going to be wind farms and solar farms and all kinds of infrastructure that needs to get built. All right. I want to talk about Australia and our place in the Pacific. Um, after years of being a bad actor, Australia is back, kind of, you know, in a sort of, you know, in a sort of like, hey, we're coming back kind of way. Uh, at least we have a 2030 target now, which we didn't have, you know, three weeks ago. What are the strengths that Australia can bring to the global conversation on climate action now as opposed to six months ago? What do you think, what kind of pressure can we apply in our region to kind of seek more climate action? So. Climate change will be determined by the major economies, the 20 major economies that make up about 80% of the world's emissions, and Australia is part of that club. And Australia is now uh, in the game uh, helping to make the case to everyone, including China, which emits 30% of the world's greenhouse gases and candidly needs to move faster if we're going to have a safe climate future, to join us in setting targets for 2030 that deliver the kind of reductions we need to hit net zero globally by 2050 and to solve this problem or at least mitigate it sufficiently. And so now Australia is there because Australia has a target that I believe that it will deliver against Mm. that is straight on a line to net zero by 2050 uh, for Australia. And so the key thing is not is it 43% or 44% or whatever. The key thing is that it is a pace of emission reductions from today's levels that's right on track to get to net zero by 20. 
2050. Mm. And that's what we need all major economies to uh, join together and do. And by the way, as, as we do that, as the United States, as Australia, working together in many cases on things like electric vehicle supply chains and so on, as we do that, costs come down. And that's part of why this is happening now in the United States and why it's happening now in Australia is that renewables are cheaper to get electricity than any other source. Electric vehicles are cheaper for consumers than any other way to drive. And so that's because countries have momentum now or more and more countries have momentum on this issue. And it's great to have Australia fully in the fold on that now. And one of the things we don't talk a lot about in Australia and climate is our scope three emissions. You know, we are a carbon intensive economy. We are, we are, well, one of the top three or four, depending on the globe, global conflicts of the day, fossil fuel exporters. But we don't ever have a conversation about our contribution to the molecules in the atmosphere that leave our shores. How do we have that conversation with our own government? How do we convince our own government that we needed to stop the export at, at our own economic detriment for a little bit of these fossil fuels? If we think about how we're going to get at this problem globally, the bottom line is that it's on the demand side where the real action is. What is going to uh, cut into global oil consumption? It's electric vehicles and electrification of all transportation, um, and in some cases, hydrogen, perhaps. And as we do that globally, including hopefully at pace in Australia now, on the demand side, then that means that uh, there'll be less and less need to invest in and develop oil for for the world to use. Right. And and that's the way that we'll, we'll see that oil will peak and decline and we'll be able to get this done. Same thing applies for coal. As we move to uh, substitute renewables for coal-fired electricity on a global basis, then global demand for coal goes down, and that's how you get at this problem. So this is about, and, getting, this is about getting our customers to change. So it's about getting our current customers and, and, to to, to change the way they are making energy. Including here in Australia, where yeah. you got to see the progress pick up in order to deliver on Australia's new uh, 43% target mm. on uh, decarbonizing electricity and electrifying everything. And then Australia is kind of fully part of that effort on the demand side. And then the rest follows uh, on the supply side. And, and let me just say one more thing, though, which is it's going to take some time for this to play out. It's mm. not something that happens overnight as much as we want it to. It is going to be well over a decade of energy transition globally and, and more like two to three decades, if we're honest about it. And during that time, it's important that all suppliers of fossil fuels during that transition period, you know, as they taper down, we also need to make sure those fossil fuel supplies are as clean as possible. So we've got to get out the methane emissions that come from coal, oil, and gas uh, along the way. I'm glad you brought up methane because we do have a question without notice from Greens leader Adam Bant. But Pacific leaders see it when we say we're committed to climate action and then go home and announce 10 new oil and gas fields like the Australian Labor government did this week. Will you push Australia to commit to no new coal and gas as part of US re-engagement in the Pacific and for our government to adopt the global methane pledge that President Biden is championing? What absolutely. say you, America? <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely are encouraging all countries in the world including Australia, to join the now more than 120 countries that have uh, committed to work together on cutting methane pollution at least 30% by 2030 in the Global Methane Pledge. So yes, on that second part. On the first part, we are back to what I was just describing. The answer to how to um, achieve energy transition globally is above all else that we need to 
complete that journey of uh, clean power and electrification of transportation buildings and industry as the core of the climate solution globally. And when we do that, we address what's needed globally on on the energy sector. We have this crazy thing in Australia with LNG exports. I don't know if you know about a local market here. It's absolutely bonkers, right? 80% of LNG gets exported out and we well, we are short of LNG for our, our domestic supply because of a deal done in 2002 with 2002 prices locked in for 30 years. Uh, we're getting to the point now we're actually building LNG import terminals for the potentially process of getting LNG re-imported from Asia back into Australia because it'll be cheaper than supplying our market. <laughs> We've seen these kinds of... We've got plenty of gas. Look, we've seen these kinds of shocks uh, all over the world in this market, including in the United States, where we had uh, back and forth on LNG that was at a similar scale, where for a while we were building LNG um, import terminals, and then now we're big uh, LNG exporters yeah. uh, now that we're um, doing so much uh, natural gas production. But I think the core answer to that question around uh, energy insecurity is the same answer to the question around climate insecurity, which is that we've got to uh, double, triple down on the transition. Because once we get to this clean power, electrified end use future, then we've got both. We've got climate security and energy security in one go. On the methane thing, I think it's so interesting, like looking at the 120 countries that are signed, Bahrain's on that list. Canada, Kuwait, Nigeria, Tunisia, Qatar has signed it. These are carbon economies. Like what is, what is, like what is like taking Australia's Time to sign this. Let me like, also know. Have you have you gone have you gone knocking on uh, on on Chris Bowen's door and said, me, "Hey, Chris, popping in. Can you just sign this for me?" Let me also note that we have over three quarters of the world's top livestock and dairy producers have joined as yeah. well, which yeah. is one of the more challenging. So, what's, what's your message to Australia? Come on, our message. Rick, come on, come on. Be forceful. Do it with <laughs> do it with do it with enthusiasm, Rick. Our come message. On. Throw the diplomacy the, away, Rick. Come on, say uh, something that'll get me a headline, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> the water's warm. Come in. No, look. It's uh, it's it's a um, it's a crucial conversation for us to all join in because you've got to take seriously that uh, half a degree centigrade of today's climate change is caused by methane, and there's just no faster way to manage our near-term climate future uh, than to cut methane pollution. And we're not on track globally. To be clear, methane emissions are increasing 10% over the next decade on the current trajectory. So we don't just need people to join the Global Methane Pledge. What we need above all, and I believe Australia is headed in this direction, is to join us in the pledge, but do the work. Cut the methane. And uh, and that's, I think, really where we are focused. And we're making headway on that. I want to just note President Lopez Obrador of Mexico joined President Biden recently and committed to uh, move on addressing oil and gas methane in Pemex, uh, the national oil company of Mexico's operations, uh, in a major way for the first time. And we're going to do that work together there. And we're uh, working in Nigeria, we're working um, in many geographies all at once, and not just in the fossil sector. But that's the hard work we need to do. And we want Australia to step up and be a full partner in that. Come on, come on, just, yeah, spoken like a diplomat. Well done. That's why you're the Deputy Climate Envoy and I'm not. That was a lovely way to word that, hurry up, Australia. That's how I would have said it. Let's talk about some threats quickly. When you see these global agreements over the last decade, not just in climate, but Brexit falling apart, um, the war in uh, Eastern Europe, what kind of threats do you see on the horizon for a global climate? Like what, what's kind of the, an unforeseen threat that we're not really thinking about for these global agreements that could that could destabilize them? What we can say is that it's instructive to look at what happened 
when Russia illegally invaded Ukraine. And I think that the reverberations there are still happening. There's obviously the humanitarian crisis that it has caused um, in Ukraine above all else. But then there's reverberations globally that include all these shocks to energy prices, uh, but also shocks to fertilizer and therefore food prices. And what we are seeing on, I guess, a silver lining uh, side from that is that the response in Europe, the response globally, is that governments see that they need to just move faster to get to the clean energy yeah. uh, future. And they need to move faster to get to cleaner fertilizers that are things like uh, you know, green, uh, green hydrogen to green ammonia as a way to uh, cut loose from all that volatility and from petrostate uh, control of their economies. And so I guess that is a recent or even current example of how geopolitical shocks can intersect with climate change. Mm. But in this case, it's really causing everyone to double down. Yeah. On, on the transition to clean energy. Now, going forward, I think the biggest threat to climate action is probably some of the uh, global trends around um, what's happening in media environments and what's causing uh, and what, what's happening to democracies. And, if, and if, we're, if we're candid about it, and I probably won't be very specific in naming names, uh, that is that, where we get you the most. You definitely don't want to say Rupert Murdoch <laughs> is a problem for democracy while you're in Australia, Rick. You can say that in America, but don't say it at the ABC studios. I can say that uh, because I, I, was don't, I don't have any money uh, for Rupert Murdoch to defame me, to defame. <laughs> but don't you dare say Lachlan Murdoch has anything to do with dismantling democracy. Oh. <laughs> uh, Rick is nervously drinking. A bottle of water. <laughs> but that is what worries me is is the uh, is the whole question of um, kind of the undercurrents of yep. uh, autocracy. I think that is the toughest part. What are kind of the exciting areas you see for Australia in the region? Like what are the opportunities you see for, you know, us as citizens of Australia, but also Australia as an actor on the on the Pacific stage? I think there are um, a couple that I want to highlight. One is uh, precisely in the region. Australia is a uh, crucial partner for us in working with countries like Indonesia and India on accelerating their energy transition. And we're already doing that work um, ourselves and with other allies. And we are eager to work with Australia on making that happen uh, at pace in those countries. And we think that's um, a huge shared uh, opportunity. More on the commercial side, we are moving now to scale up a kind of North American electric vehicle manufacturing powerhouse. And we've been very clear, and Congress has been very clear, we are going to need um, a, a secure supply chain in that. And so we think that Australia is uh, one among you know many natural partners in making sure we've got um, the right kind of uh, critical minerals supply um, in order to make all that happen. So that's another example. There are many others. I mean, that that's so interesting because Australia is rich in minerals. We do have a lot of you know, particularly rare earth minerals that... Uh, that are part of the new economy, but we don't do any processing here. You know, there's there's none of that. There's, there's all that happens in Asia. Is that an opportunity for Australians to kind of take that part of the supply chain and, and you know, be a kind of a powerhouse in processing those kinds of um, minerals here? It is an opportunity because the scale of the prize is 
uh, immense. I mean, it, and it's not just batteries, it's not just electric vehicles, it's also uh, renewables components. All these things need critical minerals and they need processed critical minerals. And then obviously there's opportunities downstream in manufacturing things as well. And of course, deploying all those solutions in the Australian economy. So there's lots of work to do. And Australia has a, a set of key roles that it can play in that work. Okay, I've got a question without notice from Marie Hernandez. She's a friend of mine that is from Guam. Buenas and half a day. Guadalupe Maria Hernandez May. My name is Maria Hernandez May. I'm an Indigenous Chamorro mother, um, also an environmental and cultural rights activist based in Guam, as well as the 2022 Bertha Foundation Fellow. My question to the U.S. Climate Envoy, I'll start off by saying that Guam is positioning itself as a leader really in the worldwide sustainability movement. As you're aware, we're considered a highly strategic location in the Asia Pacific region. Our local government has been working toward fostering sustainable economic growth and really paying attention to climate change because so many islands are being impacted by climate change in the Pacific. We're trying so hard to make our island more self-sustaining, but the reality is that we're an, an unincorporated territory of the U.S. We don't have a seat at the table when it comes to U.S. military projects that are changing the entire landscape of the Pacific. And right now, one third of our island is occupied by the U.S. military. There is a massive firing range complex being built above our northern lens aquifer that provides 90% of the community with water. And access to clean drinking water is a human right. We don't want our aquifer and our land and our, and our coastal waters to be contaminated like we're seeing across so many communities where there's a large military presence. The example that I can think of right away is the crisis at Red Hill in Hawaii, what they're experiencing out there. It's really a nightmare. So I ask what steps can be taken to further reduce the military's footprint here, protect our aquifer, protect our people, ultimately, and, and to promote sustainability to better position our island and our region to fight climate change. Thank you. It's from Maria. Thank you for the question. You're asking questions that I don't frankly have great answers to. I am um, outside of my domain of expertise on a lot of this. Clearly, there's uh, work to be done in trying to uh, answer what you posed uh, better than I can. Look, one thing I can say is that when it comes to the Pacific more broadly, because I really can't speak to the specifics that you've raised uh, with any uh, with any detail. It's, it's too far beyond my expertise and mandate. What I can tell you is that we are acutely aware of the impact of climate change itself in the Pacific and specifically for vulnerable states like small island states, including because of sea level rise itself. And that is why we are so committed uh, to doing this work to keep 1.5 degrees centigrade within reach. And that is why we think about it not just in terms of this whole energy transition that we've been talking about uh, already, but also the fast mitigation complement to the energy transition, which starts with this methane work 
to make sure that we're uh, cutting pollution uh, that will control the climate in the next 30 years uh, and other short-lived climate pollutants like HFCs. And we've got to uh, then also invest in adaptation. So we're gearing up our PREPARE initiative, which aims to get things like early warning systems around to the world so that farmers know if they're going to get hit by a year of drought, they know in advance and can at least try to do their best uh, to manage through that. So we're doing what we can on uh, on that front, and your excellent questions about Guam specifically, I'm just not in a good position to answer specifically. Uh, they are a, uh, an island that is a colony of America. Mass migration is something that is kind of at the top of my mind when I think about our islands in Australia, like uh, Torres Strait Islanders who are losing their culture and, and homes and probably will disappear over the next 15 years. Is there something in place in terms of uh, US policy to look after folks who are from islands that are colonies of America, like um, Puerto Rico or Guam or uh, other island areas to bring them to uh, a different landmass? Well, it, it's a case-by-case question. I, I will say at the highest level that I think both uh, the United States and Australia benefit from uh, a relatively open posture on immigration uh, and have so uh, over uh, decades. And in my strong view, both countries should double down on that going forward <laughs> because um, it's in their interest to do so. In the case of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico is part of the United States and citizens can travel uh, you know, back and forth at will. There's a, a opportunity for Puerto Rico to potentially become a state, and that's a complicated question in its own right. But I think that the, you know, the answer depends on which exact place we're talking about. Sure. Okay. Here are some quick questions from Patreon. Uh, many of you have already answered, so feel free to give, you know, three second answers here. Uh, first one from comedian Ben Pobji, uh, who does your hair? <laughs> I think this, this, No one. No one does your hair? <laughs> Including not me. Very good. <laughs> this is from uh, Sasha. With the polarization of politics, how can a genuine bipartisan approach to positive change occur? This is good. echoes back something we were talking about a little bit before. What we've seen in the U.S. is that as technology costs have come down to the point that the clean stuff is cheaper and better for consumers and everyone, um, and as our uh, younger citizens have stepped up and demanded that we do more on all this, that is basically uh, shifting the politics tectonically so that now, uh, sure, there's a, there's a hardcore of kind of climate skeptics, climate denial, uh, denialists, but mainly what you have is that's fading. And with this uh, set of investment that's coming, uh, it's going to be bipartisan increasingly going forward. Spirit asks, do America's targets include land use? Yes. Uh, Lulu CF? Absolutely. We have a considerable uh, land use sink that helps us with our climate math, and we need to and are investing in making sure we maintain the health of that. And by the way, that's going to get harder as we deal with climate impacts and wildfire, and that's a shared challenge, obviously, in both countries. I read that the trees are growing in the tundra now, so, you know, just keep growing that forest out there. You know. <laughs> I guess silver linings, right? <laughs> yeah. Matthew asks, how to radically reduce America's carbon footprint without sanctioning the politics of austerity? I think um, the IRA goes some way to answering Matthew's question there. 
Definitely. I think that we are on safe ground on that question right now. And it's not just the IRA. We also have a couple hundred billion dollars in investment from our Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that's in place and starting to flow into the economy for innovation on clean energy and climate solutions. And then there's even in our semiconductor bill called the CHIPS Act, there's opportunities on climate there. So we are investing. Uh, We are not uh, practicing austerity on climate right now. And this is a final question from me. There are rumors that your boss might be a Retiring, can we have the exclusive to announce that you'll be taking over from John Kerry? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> well, Rich, it's an absolute privilege to sit face to face with you and talk through these issues. Uh, I've never met a super bow before, but uh, it was really fun. And I hope, I hope I get to see you again in the future and pose more questions to you. Thanks for hosting me, and please come to Washington. We can have a pint. <laughs> That'll be great. GM Pook. The greatest moral podcast of our generation. Well, there you have it. We had 30 minutes with America and we covered a lot of territory in that 30 minutes and it was uh, really good fun. I hope to do it again sometime soon. Big thank you to the US State Department for hooking that up. Also, big thanks to Maria Hernandez from Guam and uh, our friend Adam Bant over at the Greens for their questions. Uh, really curly questions there for America. Also, big thank you to Jacob Brown on the Teppanyaki Timeline for jamming this podcast together. If you love what we do at uh, Rational Fear, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash a rational fear and chip in you know three bucks a month five bucks a month um keep this show on the road right now extremely helpful (laughs) and paid the bills to put this show together uh also if you love us on stage please head on over to the festival of dangerous ideas we're back on stage september 17 talking all things secrecy in australia and that's a huge lineup. David McBride, Amber Schultz, Kate McClymont, Damien Cave from the New York Times, as well as Lewis Hobber and myself. And that's September 17 at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. It's going to be a really funny show. Just started putting it together this week and uh, it's going to be stupid and good. Uh, and also, you'll learn a lot and I've also laugh a lot and also be so shocked as to uh, how fucked up Australia is. That's like the remit of this show, isn't it? It's amazing. Irrational fear. That's what we do here. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll see you, uh, speak to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.